Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor at City Reform. We'll dismiss our children for uh, Children's Church. As they go, we'll turn to the book we are working through, working through the Gospel of Matthew. We'll cover this book in parts over a period of time. Our goal between now and Christmas is to move through the first uh, seven chapters or so. We'll get a beginning, uh, a foundation of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, what we've seen uh, so far is that Matthew has a very uh, significant interest in showing us that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, or more, maybe more accurately, the one they had been waiting for. The, the first 80% of the Bible, known as the Old Testament, taught God's people to wait for a king who would come to bring salvation. Matthew is very concerned to show the links between Jesus and all of those promises. Jesus is the promised king. Uh, in particular importance, the, the Old Testament had taught God's people to expect someone to prepare the way for the king. The, this figure would be like the prophet Elijah, a great wilderness prophet from the old, the old days, and that he would come to prepare the way so that they would receive the king. As we look at this passage, we see that John the Baptist fits the bill. Later, he is described as the one who, like Elijah, came to prepare God's people for their king. But he does it uh, by, uh, to paraphrase, raising a ruckus. John is raising a ruckus in the wilderness of Judea. We'll turn to our text, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and then together affirm that this is God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming into his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with, your, with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. There are three things we see broadly about John the Baptist as we're introduced to him. Uh, first of all, we see his greatness. Uh, John the Baptist uh, had a ministry of preaching in the wilderness. And, and in verse 6, Matthew tells us that all of the region came out to him. He doesn't mean literally every person, but people from all places. 
representatives of all different sections of life came into the wilderness, all uh, Jerusalem, the capital city, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Uh, the, the phrase, we're going out, says it's not just one thing, but they were regularly going once a week or on a regular basis. They were going back to hear this prophet speak in the wilderness. Even, we see in verse 7, the religious leaders went, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were of the people. They were uh, not religious professionals, but they were very serious about God's law. They brought a renewal movement, a, a call for return to serious spirituality. They were well respected and serious about their faith. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were religious leaders that were benefiting greatly from their position in the Roman system. They were more compromised, and often these two groups battled bitterly with each other, but they both came to hear John. John was a great figure. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, showed, show that John the Baptist came before Jesus and announced the importance of his ministry. Even a Jewish historian outside the Bible, Josephus, who wrote in the first century, mentions John the Baptist as someone he was aware of. He was a great man. And later in the, the Gospel of um, uh, Matthew, when Jesus refers back to John, Matthew eleven eleven, he says, Truly I say among you, those born of woman there of those born of woman there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was great, but he was also one who came to prepare. That would have been expected, as I mentioned before, the, the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets who had come before gave expectation that someone would come to prepare the way before the king. He was something of a, 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 the town crier, so to speak, who would come to the village saying, prepare, the king is coming. You can imagine that happening in the olden days. In our modern days, we might have an opening act for a really big band. Their role is to prepare you. They have their own agenda and role as well. But their role is to prepare you for the main act that is coming. That is what John the Baptist was. And, and Matthew tells us right off the bat. That's what John was doing. He uh, tells us in, in verse 3. This is Matthew's editorial comment. For this is he, John the Baptist, raising a ruckus in the wilderness this is John. He is the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. John himself understood this was his role. Uh, he said, uh, there's someone coming after me who's mightier than I am. When people ask John, what are you doing? He said, I'm here to prepare there's one mightier, so much mightier than me, I'm not even worthy, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, in, in the ancient world, uh, any great teacher would have many followers, and these followers would help in so many ways, they were practically servants. But it was common knowledge that not even the, the, the followers or these types of servants would untie the sandals of the teacher. So of that analogy, John said, he is so much more. The one who's coming after me is so much more. I'm preparing you for him. The Gospel of John gives us these words, I must decrease, he must increase. 
So John was great. He had a role of preparation, but he was also a little strange. This is all very intentional. I'm bringing it out. It's intentionally part of his ministry, but it is a little weird, isn't it? He was clothed in camel hair with a leather belt around his waist. It would be the modern equivalent of saying he came dressed in a burlap sack. Very humble. Now, it's not as if no one would wear camel hair garments, but the people who did were the ones that lived in the wilderness. And this was not like a a bunch of yuppies going on a hiking trail. If you lived in the wilderness, it meant you were at the margins of society. You didn't shower. You, you, You weren't part of the mainstream of what was going on. John is identifying with the most marginalized people of a society, even to the extent of what he eats. He eats locust and wild honey. You can imagine sitting down to a meal with someone, uh, and you, you pull out your, your lunch, and you have a nice wrapped sandwich, and they are eating insects and honey that they gathered themselves. Perhaps the bee stings are still on his hands. All of these things contribute to a picture of John as a marginalized person. He's not in Jerusalem where the the teachers and the leaders are, but he's out in the wilderness. They didn't have port-a-johns. They didn't have easy access. There weren't uh, weren't nice shuttles that took people out there. It was hard to get there. It was hot. It was dry. It was sandy. It was uncomfortable. And John is challenging everything. In his ministry, he's challenging everything in the establishment and in institutional religion. That's why I say he's raising a ruckus. He is intentionally placed as an outside figure challenging the inside people. It is not only what he wore and where he was, but what he said. He called people to repent, to turn. He called them to receive baptism. Now, it's not as if baptism was never present before John, but it was present for people who were outsiders to the religion that came in. If someone was a a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, they were strangers to the covenants of promise, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, if they converted, part of the ritual would be a ritual of baptism. But Jewish people didn't do this. When When John calls these people to do that, he's saying, you are naturally outsiders that need to be brought in. When he calls them to repent, he calls them to turn. He says, you're going the wrong direction. And when he sees the religious leaders, rather than currying favor, rather than trying to get in their good graces, rather than trying to align himself with the religious systems and structures of the day, he greets them by saying, welcome brood of vipers. You're a whole family of snakes. If you lived in the ancient world, a snake is not a nice thing you see in the reptile museum. It's the thing you really, really hope is not in the back of the wood pile when you go to get extra wood. It's a frightening creature, representative of, of that which is dark and slithering and uncomfortable. And this is not to say snakes are naturally bad. It's just a picture of that in the human experience. John calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers. And then he says to them, not only them, but all people, don't presume upon your great heritage. You need to turn back to God. You're going the wrong way. John's raising a ruckus. 
Now, why, why is he doing this? We know these three things about John. He was great. He, uh, he was a necessary part of God's plan of preparation. And he was abrasive. W- would you have wanted John to be at your dinner party? If you were a follower of John, perhaps, and he was your friend, and you were going to throw a big party, would you want John to be there? with his camel's hair clothing and his little Tupperware jar of wild insects and honey. So, someone, wants, someone wants John. Good for you. I suspect maybe many of us don't actually want John around. With his hard message of repentance and turning, his, his warnings of judgment and fire, it's uncomfortable. What I'd like to do today is suggest that, (coughs) dramatic pause brought on by a sneeze, I would suggest this, that we need John, that actually John in all of his discomfort with the ruckus and and the upside down nature and the challenges and the clothes and the hard words, that he's what we need. Not just John in himself, but John as a pointer to Jesus, as one who prepares us for the goodness and grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. I'd like to do two things today. First of all, just explain John's message and why it was important. He came bringing a, a, a strong message, and he came in a challenging way, at times abrasive, because he brought a message that was so important. Secondly, we'll try to look at the passage again and and hear John for ourselves and hear what he would have to say to us if we're willing to listen. Uh, So first, what was John's message? Uh, John's message was simply a message of repentance. As I mentioned before, the the idea of repentance is turning. Uh, The Hebrew word that would have been used in the Old Testament for repent was the word turn. That means you're going one way and you turn and go the other way. John was a prophet in line of this great prophetic tradition who called God's people to turn back to him. Now, when you tell someone to turn, it means they're not going the right way. Uh, Unfortunately, this happens to me a lot when I'm driving. I get mentally distracted. I keep my car very well in the lines, but I sometimes forget to make a turn. I go the wrong way. I I go automatically wherever I had gone before. So the more distracted I am, the more likely I am to go the wrong way, and at which point someone in my family might yell, Dad, where are you going? Or if I have the the GPS unit talking to me, you know, sometimes it's not bad. You can just make another turn later and you kind of get back on track. But sometimes you're looking at your screen and you know you missed your turn because it just says, turn around. That's the worst. There's not, it's not even like you can just make a slight readjustment. Find the next exit, turn around, and if you have a screen, it shows there's a blue line going up and a blue line coming back. Right? It means every distance you go now, every, every um, foot or mile you go now, you're going the wrong way. You're going further the wrong direction. But John is trying to get their attention because they're going the wrong way. He's, try, he's, he's trying to be abrasive because they're going the wrong direction and the further they go, the faster they run, the greater the distance between them and God. 
I, I saw a video online a couple of weeks ago, and, and the headline was about a football player who ran the wrong way. Uh, if you understand football, the teams are going opposite directions. It's the basic premise of the game. Well, this man was on defense. He was a high school student, actually, a young man. He, he caught the ball, a great interception, but as he caught it in the air, he was turned, and he landed on the ground. He saw open space in front of him, and he ran like crazy. No one was tackling him as he ran the wrong way down the field. He must have been thinking, I am the best. I am the best. And yet with every yard he went, he was not the best. He was making things worse. Fortunately, he had a friend who understood what was happening. One of his teammates who was faster than he was ran down the field after him. He, tra he tracked him down and his own teammate tackled him. <laughs> now you know why this is trending on the internet. It's actually pr a pretty funny story. When your friend is going the wrong way, the most gracious thing you can do is tackle him. Before he reaches the end zone, it's going to be worse. That's what John's doing in a sense. He's abrasive, he's harsh, he's strong. He's in every capacity of what he's doing. He's trying to get people to wake up. You're going the wrong way. And the softness and smoothness of nice words is not going to accomplish the purpose that for which John has he calls them to a, a baptism of repentance in which they confess their sins. He uses a, a jarring symbolism and, and he calls them to a really uh, probably uncomfortable public activity. They are publicly confessing their sins. We do this every week in our worship service, though we privately confess that which is per, uh, personal. But there have been in the times in the history of God's church where in the, the guidance of God's spirit, God's people have been led to confess publicly. In some cases, when our sin is public, we have to do that. It's hard. No one wants to do that. These people didn't want to go to the, uh, the, the wilderness because it was fun. They went because they believed that John was speaking for God. And he had convinced them they needed to go another direction. John's desire is that they would not only turn their direction, but that they would keep going. In verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. So the, the, whole, the whole structure of what John's doing is sort of a wake-up call. The second thing I'd like to do today is uh, uh, to, to stand with you and say, what is it like for us to hear John speaking to us? Is it true that we may be people who need a wake-up call? Does John have a ministry for us? Is it possible, perhaps, that we get comfortable in our spirituality? Maybe we, whether we realize it or not, have a, have a view of morality so formed by the world around us that we can't hear God say anything differently. We tend to assume whatever's right is what everyone says online. What all of my friends tell me, what the general voice of everything is, it is a strong and powerful voice. Do we need a wake-up call? Or perhaps we simply find that spiritual things are so familiar they no longer capture our attention. Maybe you're someone who grew up going to church. And John the Baptist is in every one of the Gospels. So you've probably heard about him before. He's one of the more famous New Testament figures. 
And maybe we read John the Baptist and your first response is to sort of yawn and say, this is familiar, I've heard it before. But if we really hear John, we let him be abrasive. We let him challenge us. We let him make us uncomfortable because we know it's for our good. We know that we are all prone to run the wrong way. And the further we get, the worse the problems. Let's look at the passage again. Let's let John hear, speak to us. I just, I walked through it trying to think of that in mind and, and I saw just seven quick points as we go through. Seven things we can hear John saying to us as we hear him. Now, first of all, we hear John saying, repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven, as, as Matthew uh, puts it here in his translation. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, this is important for us to consider um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that John is calling them to turn and to go back, but also that Jesus himself would say the exact same thing when he began his ministry. I want to point that out because sometimes we could disarm John by saying, well, you know, John was before Jesus. And it's certainly true. His role was to prepare and point us. And we don't want to receive John without Jesus. He wouldn't want us to do that. But the message that John brought is the exact same message that Matthew tells us summarizes the teaching of Jesus. Look with me, I have this verse in the bottom of your uh, insert, Matthew four seventeen, the introduction to the ministry of Jesus after Jesus moves out to begin his public ministry, John four seventeen. Jesus, uh, Matthew tells us, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the, the ministry of Jesus is summarized by that same call, we are people who need to turn. We need to turn continually. We need to recognize that our natural tendency goes in a different way from God. I'll ask you a simple question. Would you consider this? Can you identify places in your life where the thing you want and the thing that God wants are different? If, if, if you cannot identify anywhere, there's two possibilities. One is you are so perfectly in love with God that your heart has been transformed by him. And the Bible says, don't expect that in this life. The other possibility is you fooled yourself into thinking God wants everything you want. There's a story told of Abraham Lincoln uh, during the Civil War. I was at a, a prayer breakfast with pastors, and one of the ministers said, let us pray that God is on our side. Lincoln responded by saying, it is far more important that we pray that we would be on God's side. How easy it is for us to assume that what we're doing is what God wants. But John would warn us, if you don't see any gap between what you naturally want and what God wants, you're probably deceiving yourself. You're probably going full speed the wrong direction. And so John would say to us, repent. Friends, this message was not only the message of Jesus, it has been the message of the church down through the years. When Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, his, one of his first statements was to say the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. We are always turning back to God. 
John not only has people, uh, warns them to repent, but he calls them to baptism and to confession of their sins. As I said before, baptism was a, a ceremony from what we think previously reserved for converts. It shows the depth of our human rebellion. It says we are people deeply in need of mercy and forgiveness. To go into the water with John and to be washed by John was a picture of utter dependence that we need to be washed. It may be that John took them under the water. It may be that he poured water on their heads. I'm not convinced the method was particularly important, but the symbolism was we need God to wash us. We need to be changed and we need to be forgiven. And in the process, they confess their great need as they publicly confess their sins. Confession is not fun, is it? We, we think carefully about what's appropriate and what setting and what to do, but the truth is none of us like to confess ever anywhere. We would rather self-justify. We'd rather explain why someone else is really to blame or why we were really right. I was working on the sermon last night, and of course, uh, I realized I had things to confess. I played in a soccer game yesterday evening, and as the game was over, I was painfully aware that at times my conduct was less than loving. I got really angry at my team. They weren't playing defense, and I was the only one doing it. And when I had to play goalie, no one helped me, and they kicked. I was angry. And as I thought about it, I realized, I, I need to say something now. Fortunately, I'm on Viber with all of my international friends that I play with, so you can type these things out. And as I typed it, I realized my tendency even now is to explain why I was really right when I yelled at my teammates. But I wasn't. It was a stupid pickup game of soccer. And so as I reflected on my own heart, I realized the only really good thing to say is I'm sorry. I don't want to do that. Confession doesn't justify, it doesn't blame someone else, it owns what's wrong and it puts it out there and it's hard to do. It's a pathway of repentance in life. Third, we see in this passage that John doesn't look for power in religious leaders to further his processes. Many people have been writing recently about the dangers of celebrity culture and the way it's so tempting even for Christians to always want a powerful, visible, popular figure to be at the head of our movement. And so any movie star or singer who says anything about Jesus will grab a hold of and hold on until they embarrass us deeply. They will look for power and influence in all of the wrong places John knew that the purposes of God did not come from these leaders. In fact, he gave us a warning that leaders can lead us the wrong direction. For all those listening in this scene, they would have known my repentance is so important. I can't just follow people blindly. When he called out the religious leaders, he was urging each person to think carefully for themselves. It's true, we need leaders and there is a great responsibility on leaders, but we must be careful. Fourth, we see a call to bear fruit. What, what uh, John says in verse 8 is that we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What we're reminded of here is repentance is not just a one-time thing, 
but it's a perpetual thing. It's like riding in the car with me. It's not, I just had one wrong turn. I can make multiple wrong turns on one drive if I'm really, you know, occupied in my head. It's not just our car, though. It's our life. We don't just turn once, but we keep turning back again and again. Our propensity is to turn from God back to our own selfish purposes, to say, my way, not your way. My kingdom come, not your kingdom come. My will be done. And so we repent continuously. And as we walk in that, as we keep turning back into God, our, our life begins to have different consequences and results. We bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. Sometimes when people really get excited about a change in their life, they, they express it with really bad mathematics. Have you ever heard someone say, uh, I was going this way and I, my, my life changed, I did a complete 360. Right, and so if you've, you've done geometry or something like that, you know it's not good to do a 360 if you want to change. It means you've turned the whole way around and you're still going that way. That's what we sometimes do. We, we, we repent once and if we're not careful, we're back the same way again. Whether we realize it or not, our propensity is to do 360s back. Back to turning away from God and running from him. I find my life, my spiritual life is most, most vibrant when I am most quick to repent. I was reflecting on this last week as I was journaling. I just wrote, uh, not even really thinking of the sermon till later, I found myself pondering how I need to be continually reoriented to God. My heart is so easily cold and it drifts to self-satisfaction, pleasure, and comfort. Lord, help me to love your kingdom. We repent continually and bear fruit as we walk into it. Fifth, we're warned not to presume. That's what he says to the leaders. Don't presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. He said, don't look for the outward signs to give you confidence of an inward spirituality. Yes, it was a big deal that they were children of Abraham. Yes, God works through our families. But how tempting is it for you to say, I know I must be okay spiritually because my parents go to church. I'm so many into a generation of Christians. Of course I must be right. We want to bring our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but we don't want them to presume that just because they've been in the church, their heart is right with God. In the baptism ceremony today, I asked Cyril and Melanie to, to promise that they would use all the means of God's appointment as parents, and part of God's means is John the Baptist and his ministry of repentance challenging each other to be people who turn repeatedly back to God to not presume because we have a heritage or because we have a standing or because our church does something that we might think is right that it's good enough it must be personal and it must be real sixth John warns us of judgment and it's maybe here that we're most likely to, to dismiss John it's maybe here that we're most likely to say, I don't really want this guy at my dinner party because he's saying hard things. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor 
and gather his wheat in the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's important for us to notice that John not only brings an urgency to this, but he assigns the ministry of judgment to the ministry of Jesus. This phrase about the winnowing fork, a a large pitchfork that would have been used to separate wheat from the non-edible part of the plant as they threw it into the air. The winnowing fork, he said, is in the hand of Jesus. He is preparing the way for someone else, one greater than I. Jesus will come with power and mercy, pouring out the Holy Spirit on the church, but he also comes with a ministry of fire. Many scholars think that's a reference to the role Jesus plays in judgment. In verse 12, John makes it clear. He says, the winnowing fork is in his hand. And he speaks of a judgment of unquenchable fire. Friends, the uncomfortable truth of the Bible is that Jesus speaks more about judgment than anyone else. He speaks more of, un, uh, of eternal judgment than anyone else. Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else. And if John was at our dinner party, we might say, you know, John, maybe that's not the best way to win friends and influence people. That seems really harsh. But John's response is to say, you need to turn and you need to know. Certainly, fear of God's judgment has been misused and manipulative in its presentation by many in the history of the church, but John's message in its fundamental form is not either. It is the most loving thing. The Bible tells us that God who created the world is full of mercy, but he is a God of justice. And that all who turn to him find mercy and grace. They find in Jesus the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the very real presence of God, the promise of forgiveness for sins. But John warns all who will not turn will continue to their destruction. They will continue in this life and into death where they will face God as his enemy and the consequences are terrifying. Unquenchable fire, John says. As people, we would rather not hear it, and yet we have a deep awareness that justice is not served in this life. The Bible doesn't uh, gloss over the injustices in the world, but it holds a higher standard where we are tempted to look around us and say, God, why don't you do something about what's wrong? The Bible says God will. But his standard of what is wrong is more exacting than yours. Our hope is that God will judge everyone a little worse than we are. He will judge the really bad people. The Bible says God judges with perfect justice such that all of us must wrestle with the reality of sin and seek forgiveness through Christ. Seventh and finally, the ministry of John points us to one mightier than John. There is a very real call of repentance. There is a very real need for justice and forgiveness. But John said, there is one coming after me. We are called to be people of repentance, but our repentance is not just from our sin and rebellion. It's to a Savior who has given himself graciously to us. 
The repentance that John offers is experienced in the totality of who Jesus is. It's not something we do on our own. It's not fixing ourselves up or making ourselves right or doing all the hard work by ourselves, but rather it's surrendering to God who's at work in us. Surrendering to the Lord Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit for those who look to him and trust and humble dependence, the power of the Spirit is working in your life. And so we repent continually because we do so in the presence of a, a loving God and a powerful Holy Spirit who draws us to a Savior who knows what it means to walk in this broken world. I was in a bad mood yesterday. And the reason ultimately I yelled at my uh, teammates is because I went to the game in a bad mood. It's been a long couple of months. School's busy, church is busy, my own life's busy, some things have been hard. I had a full week and I'm heading into a full weekend. I was looking at the calendar for today and I thought, it's just too much. And then I thought, I don't deserve this. I deserve something better. And if this is what God has for me, I think I could come up with a better plan on my own. Now, Spoiler alert, my plan is never better. It's always much worse. But in the moments, it was seemed alluring. And as the day went on, and I suffered through three hours of a, of a cold, wet pit game, only to watch them lose in miserable fashion, my mood got worse, and I began to think, I deserve better than this. My heart, which had been growing cold over time, got further, and I began to make demands on God it was probably small, but this is the thing that happens regularly. Fortunately, John's ministry was effective in my life. I was forced to sit with John for a number of hours, and he had a hard message for me. Repent. What I wanted most in that moment was not God's kingdom and God's will. What I wanted was my kingdom and my plan, my way, not God's highway. So I began to confess, surrender to God, and ask for his help. And it was so, so small. But God's grace was so big. I've seen his love and his care so powerfully in that small turning. I just use this as an example. All right? Maybe you already think I'm bad. It's worse. I have to do this multiple times every week, sometimes every day. I turn. We return and again and again we go back and we look to God's ways and we forsake our control and we see mercy and grace in Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit we say, oh God, your way is better. Would you repent again? Maybe for the first time in large grand fashion or maybe for the fifth time already this morning, would you turn back because God's ways are good? Let's pray together.